Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ross Taylor. On today's show, as the Spice Girls first asked in 1996, what do we really, really want? We'll be speaking to Ben Walker from Britain Elects about the public mood in the UK. Plus, why do so many MPs take money from frankly mysterious sources? We ask whether parties should be fully funded by taxes, or if that's just not the British way. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're nearly halfway through dry January. It may be good for us and for A&E on a Saturday night, but what does it mean for pubs struggling with their energy bills? Let's meet today's panel. Three vowels and five consonants, please, Carol. It's comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. Hello. You were on 8 Out of 10 Does Countdown this past week. I'm sorry, I didn't watch 8 Out of 10 Does Countdown. Can you send me the link? Would Rishi Sunak's plans for extra maths have helped you in the numbers round? Uh, no, well, I did maths till I was 18 uh, anyway and have my shiny, I don't, I don't know if it's changed, but in old money, I have my A and A level maths uh, to, to show for it. And uh, at no stage in any of my maths classes did Mr. McDonough or Mr. Murray mention that you shouldn't trust Jonathan Ross when he encourages you to only go for small numbers. Um, so that 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 section uh, wouldn't have uh, helped me. Though I will say that I am a very pro-maths uh, person uh, as someone who – I did it till I was 80 because I enjoyed it. But I also find it extremely useful just in my day-to-day life and being – like being literate and numerate are the two like main things from your education that you do use uh, on the day-to-day basis. And so I did find it somewhat shocking the speed with which a lot of people were keen to brush off as ridiculous the idea of uh, ongoing maths education given the challenges with maths that uh, we have in this country, that many people have in this country. There is a valid criticism that, well, recruitment is a major problem. We're not recruiting enough maths teachers even now. So if you want to expand it, that's all very well and good as a laudable aim. Uh, But how are you going to get the teachers actually to do this? Whereas I thought the, the instinctive desire to brush it off as, well, why would this be necessary? I never calculate the hypotenuse on the day-to-day, I I felt sort of missed the point. Yeah, I agree with you a bit about that because for me, I used to get stuck on maths regularly. I was not particularly good at it. Uh, I wasn't terrible at it, but I was not particularly good at it. And when you get stuck in maths, you're stuck. You know, when you get stuck in English or history, most times you can bullshit your way out of it or just just, you know write something a bit different but the the impasse that you get to with maths unless you have a really good teacher or you have a parent who has the time and the skill uh, to help you with it you are stuck and that was the real problem for me that I when I got stuck I got oh god I panicked and I couldn't be and that was why I think I didn't do better at it and that's why the quality of the maths teaching just seems to me to be so, so crucial. But and I, don't, um, I, I don't even think that it's necessarily like, you know, you till you're 18 have to do like increasingly complex pure maths uh, or whatever like that. I think that there are a lot of mathematical skills that could be taught uh, in terms of things like financial literacy and like what that, that would come in extremely useful in everyone's adult life. Mm. And then you wouldn't have... People say, oh, well, when am I ever going to need this in the real world? Um, because with something like if, if you're expanding the way that people are taught about financial literacy, for example, there, that's going to come up um, in, in the real world. And those are like skills that we could be providing this younger generation with the, that would genuinely put them in a, a better position uh, than we are. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss that. Yeah, we need to understand inflation. Arthur Snell is host of Doomsday Watch and author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Roz. A curious post appeared on Grant Shapps' Twitter page on Sunday promoting a satellite launch from Cornwall. There was just one problem. The picture he used was one taken last year, and his old boss, Boris Johnson, was very obviously photoshopped out. Why might Shapps have wanted to remove Big Dog from the picture? Well, what is it about the discredited former prime minister who polls very badly? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the answer, the clue's there. But it, it was a, a hilarious little thing because it was reminiscent of that famous picture where Trotsky was airbrushed out 
um, at Stalin's behest. Um, but but he forgot to remove the elbow, so you can see a, a sort of floating Johnsonian elbow there, which is uh, I, I think Shaps believes that he's a bit of an IT whiz, but he obviously not quite as good at Photoshop as he thinks he is. Luckily, Johnson could console himself this week by unveiling a new portrait of himself, obviously, at the Carlton Club. Have you had the chance to inspect this work of art, Arthur? Well, you may be surprised, Len. I'm not a member of the Carlton Club, but I, I did, uh, knowing that this might come up, I did, I did look online, and it's, um, it's sort of Johnson impressively, his arms folded, sort of staring into the middle distance, no doubt planning to give a um, resounding oration about Ukraine or something. So it, it's a sort of fantasy Boris painting, and I'm sure it will um, do very well for the, the denizens of that distinguished institution. It sounds ghastly. Our guest today is Ben Walker, co-founder of Polsters Britain Elects. Hi, Ben. Hello. Thank you for having me. There have been alarming rumblings this week about a Johnson comeback. Again, it has to be said. Uh, do we know how the public would feel about that? Uh, not well. Uh, it's not particularly a popular thing. Well, here's the thing. Boris Johnson, former prime minister, two prime ministers ago, went out with some of the lowest approval ratings we have seen for a prime minister in quite some time. Not the lowest. He does. Let's not beat around the bush here. Jo- Johnson does have a base of support, but it's small. Um, in 2013, the, the, the neat comparator I use is that in 2013, just as UKIP burst out onto the scene with a decent showing in the Eastleigh by-election and some good local election gains, Nigel Farage was uh, liked by between 30 to 35% of the public, right? And then, then, then though, and then there was a big chunk who didn't have a clue who he was. So he had about 30 to 35% who liked him, and then around 30% who didn't, and the rest, 30 to 40%, uh, didn't know, didn't really have much of a clue. And the thing, the thing with Johnson is that his approval, his favorability, the share of Britons who have a favorable opinion of Johnson is close to around between 25 and 30 it's it's similar popularity levels as Nigel Farage was when he burst out on the scene. The difference is, though, is that unlike Farage in 2013, around about 60-something percent of Britons have a very unfavorable view. It's, uh, it's, it's quite, you know, whilst he does have a base, that if he came back, he would get very excited by. Right now, they're not enthused by Rishi Sunak. Right now, they're not enthused about voting for the Conservatives. If Johnson came back, that number would probably be a lot more enthused about politics, but the rest of us, these 60-something percent, wouldn't. And I dare say it would, whilst it might rally bits of the Conservative base, it would put off an entire section of the of the rest of them, really. So um, whilst some people in Westminster and uh, certain parts of Britain might be excited about this, honestly, it's definitely a net negative for the Conservatives if he were to come back. <laughs> There are a lot of things troubling Britons at the moment. How to get an ambulance to come, for example. And Rishi Sunak made five pledges last week to try and address some of them. But do Britons agree with Sunak that getting inflation down is the prerequisite for everything else? How much do they care about the rising numbers crossing the channel in small boats? Ben is a polling expert and so knows better than most what Britons are thinking. Ben, those of us who have to spend time on Twitter have a decidedly skewed view of what's really preoccupying people. What do surveys tell us about the things that are really worrying people at the moment? To be honest with you, this is one time when Twitter meets Britain, one of the first times ever when you're actually speaking in tandem. And the reason being is that the cost of living is not just affecting those at the bottom, it's affecting almost everyone. Really, and this is one of the reasons why, if you ever look at the polls now nationally, Labour has something around twenty to twenty-five points ahead, and in some polls they're touching fifty percent of the vote. They still have issues. Uh, perceptions of competence doesn't doesn't really really. Uh, they don't have good perceptions of competence. Starmer is, uh, you know, people still have questions for him and all that. But but nevertheless, the, the fact is the cost of living is affecting not just those at the bottom, it's affecting everybody. And as, as such, everyone has an opinion of it. Everyone is feeling it. Going to a shopping centre, going to a supermarket is like a radicalising process. You are experiencing the number one issue facing Britain today, which is the cost of living. Now, if you want to call that inflation and prices, sure, that's what Ipsos call it. And it's it's stayed as the number one issue for the past year or so, really. The NHS is still up there. It peaked 
during the coronavirus crisis, then drifted away, replaced by the economy, replaced by getting back to normalcy or trying to, but it's still up there. Small boats, or, or rather, in, ca- in categorical terms, uh, immigration is really not there. And this, this is the thing we have uh, noticed, really, is that whilst the government has focused hard on Rwanda, the rest of the country hasn't. This Rwanda policy the government has tried to put out, make a great deal of noise about. The Daily Mail doesn't stop talking about it, tries to tell their readers to please be interested. Uh, the readers aren't. They, they are currently right now focusing on their prices, inflation, the cost of living, uh, and in other words, the economy. Uh, and that, that is the number one issue that matters most to people. And as a consequence, despite conservative attempts to 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 reposition the debate away from the economy, the issue that used to be something they were very strong on, they have suffered as a consequence. Perceptions of competence in the Conservatives have crashed. Not since, uh, it, well, it didn't start when Liz Truss arrived on the scene. It did start to collapse when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. It only really fell to the floor when Liz Truss and uh, Kwasi Kwarteng had their, had their mini-budget. And when Jeremy Hunt came in as the, you know janitor-in-chief to clean things, on it, it was at that point that the country realised or, or, or started to say, say in the polls, really, that I, I do not have uh, confidence in the Conservative Party to run the country or run the economy. Now, running the economy is the bread and butter, it's the books, it's keeping the lights on. Okay, And this is, this is an issue that even when Labour had leads before, under Ed Miliband, even when Jeremy Corbyn had leads, even when Neil Kinnock had leads, the economy was the issue for which the Conservatives were always king, except now. Now, Labour has a lead of around about between five and 10 points, which, you know, if you, if you, if you can see the numbers, it's not as large as their lead over the Conservatives in, in voting intention, but it is a significant change. So really, it is the cost of living. It is the economy. It is the general feeling of exhaustion. The stranglehold of, of reality on people is really starting to hurt, hit hard, and it's changing voting intentions as a consequence. And the fact is, in 2010 through to 15, there was a feeling of squeeze, but it, was, it wasn't happening across the country. It wasn't as profound amongst, let's say, middle class voters as it is now. And because it's happening all over, everyone is suffering, everyone's feeling the pinch, and everyone is changing their voting intention as a consequence. That's why the Tory base, you may have noticed, is so apathetic and presently not, not sure about coming out to vote at all. Arthur, it may not be such a salient issue as the Conservatives think it is, but Sunak has nonetheless pledged to outlaw small boat crossings by the end of the year. Is it possible to do that through legislation? Well, you you can make something illegal, but it doesn't stop it from happening. Um, after all, the sadly, you know, murders still take place. The only way, of course, that you could stop small boat crossings, one is by having a radically different relationship with with the French authorities, which I think Sunak is capable of certainly going in that direction. And then the other thing is by there being an alternative means, a safe means for people to cross. And I've spoken to people and I know that others on this podcast have who work uh, at migrant centres in Calais. And they will say that if if there was a safe way for people with a legitimate asylum claim to lodge their claim in Calais, then of course, a lot of people would have no uh, reason to risk their lives getting on a boat. There would have there would still be some people doing it because, of course, there are people who know that they're not likely to get asylum. Um, but uh, merely making it illegal, it's rather like the, the Rwanda policy. You know, the, it's it's very clear that the the improbable case that, you know, you might be one of the very few who might one day be sent to Rwanda, that's not going to work as a uh, disincentive. So there's no evidence that Rwanda is deterring people from crossing yet? Well, I can't see any evidence. And why would it? Because if if you know that there has been one flight that didn't take off, and on that flight, you know, by the end, there was going to be one person, and you think of how many thousands of people have crossed the channel, by definitely, you know, you don't have to be a statistician to think, well, what are the chances of me being the one person who ends up on the Rwanda flight? I mean, so I think, I think the Rwanda policy has to be a policy that's designed for the Tory voter base. It's not a policy that's designed to affect the actual numbers. Ben, why do you think people's worries about immigration have been quelled? Is it simply a matter of other things being, becoming more important and more urgent? Or is it maybe the end of free movement from the EU that means they feel more comfortable with it? Because there's a paradox here in that immigration is up, 
I always take the view um, that Dominic Cummings's vote leaves, take back control, is, was, is, remains this country's best political slogan because it spoke to a, a feeling that transcends the divide. It's, it transcends demographic. This feeling that a lot of people uh, have lost control, be it owing to, if you want to go into the... the, the the idea, the philosophy, whether it's a loss of control owing to capitalism, globalization, a loss of control over their community, you know, sometimes they blame immigration for that. It, it, it transcended the divide and it, and it really did uh, help uh, leave win in the end. And, and for Keir Starmer to, to use it in his latest speech, I think is, uh, is the correct thing to do if you're trying to speak to the country beyond your own base. Immigration um, as an issue fell down the political agenda started to fall the minute Britain voted leave. And we hadn't left by that point. Uh, We hadn't taken back control of our borders. It was just a great deal of voters, great deal of whom normally rank immigration as the number one issue, felt like they had taken back control, felt like the issue was dealt with, felt like they had been listened to. A lot... But, but when it comes to a lot of voters, perception matters more than reality, really. The perception that your community is changing without your consent, the perception things are going worse, nostalgia is a great drug and so on and so forth. It, it, perception matters more there. And the immigration, to, to go back to the data, immigration as is an issue started falling down the agenda. Uh, the minute Britain voted leave, it really got taken over by Brexit, the negotiation of Brexit in 2019. Again, we hadn't taken, we hadn't took back control of our borders at that point, did we? No, what's also happened is since this validation of a perception of taking back control is that attitudes have softened as well. Well, to tell you the truth, actually, attitudes started softening the minute UKIP came uh, 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 upon the scene. Actually, now Britain. Let's not beat around the bush here. Uh, Britain generally is more pro restrictions than pro freedom. We are quite critical of immigration. The medium Britain would prefer it if rules were tightened. Tightened from what? What rules? They don't really know. They just like the idea of things being strict anyway. Um, but compared to ten years ago, compared to fifteen years ago, when uh, attitudes such as well, when narratives such as uh, scroungers and strivers proved uh, prevalent in election campaigns, we have softened quite a bit. So, uh, you know, in twenty ten, I think it was around about sixty to seventy percent of Britons were like, you know, big cuts in immigration. We need massive cuts to the numbers of people coming to this country. Now that that number has gone below fifty for the first time since. I think it's the 1990s since actually the polling series began. If I remember rightly, it's Brit- British social attitudes. If you ever want to look it up, look up for look up attitudes on immigration. There, we have shifted partly because we feel like we have control over our borders. The perception that um, you know validated by a Leave vote, whether right or wrong, and also the fact is that Britons have grown up. Uh, well, they've they've developed their views somewhat. When UKIP arose, arrived on the, the scene, um, when you have a party avowedly anti-immigration or immigration critical a lot of voters therefore decide okay i want to be the total mirror opposite of ukip and so you see the so you when when you sort of crystallize a view in a party in a figure there's a lot of voters there who look at that and think actually no i don't want to be like that i don't actually think that when 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 britons have time to think they tend to soften their views really and that that's what we saw over the course of the past 10 to 15 years, the arrival of UKIP in a weird way actually helped soften attitudes towards immigration. The Leave vote helped soften attitudes towards immigration. The focus on Rwanda, to tell you the truth, by Rishi Sunak, by the Conservatives, if you want to go for the wets and dries, both liberal, so-called, and conservative conservatives, that their, their focus on it is speaking not to the country, it's speaking to their base. Because let's not, let's not forget what, what the composition of the Conservative Party is now. It's, in essence, if you look across a great number of seats, the Tory vote is, in essence, the 2015 Tory vote and the 2015 UKIP vote added together. Not across the entire country, votes have shifted, but in a great number of seats, that is what it is. What the Tory vote is now is a lot more, I would suppose, right-wing, socially conservative than it used to be. Those who are apathetic, are those who are unsure about voting again, are those people who, well, half of them 
are apathetic over the cost of living crisis, over Liz Truss, over Rishi Sunak, and the other half are apathetic over Boris Johnson and and uh, you know they're, they're they're unreliable voters. They came out for Leave, they came out for Boris, but they didn't come out for anything else. And the the, the focus on Rwanda is an attempt by the Tories to get those voters out. It's it, I don't want to say it's scraping the barrel. But it's scraping your base to tee them up to vote at the next election so your defeat isn't as bad as what the polls are currently predicting. It's not speaking to the country. It's, it, it's speaking to their base. Well, Arthur, speaking of the state of the Conservative Party right now, Sunak cracked down quite quickly today on Andrew Bridgen, who compared the COVID vaccine rollout to the Holocaust in a tweet and has been suspended. Is this a sign, though, of just how hard it is to control a party that you essentially ceded to the far right? I think that's right. I I think also, though, in the case of Andrew Bridgen, it's interesting looking at the current Tory party that he seems to be the only one, certainly the only member of parliament who's gone that far. And if you compare it to the GOP in America, the, the, the sort of equivalent hard right populist uh, types, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Baybert, um, Paul Gosar, so on. There's a lot more of them, and they've gone a lot further with the kind of conspiracy thinking and crazy ideas. So, in a weird way, perhaps we should be glad that there's only there's only one of these sort of apparently really kind of vociferously uh, wacko people in Parliament. If you and I say that because if you just look at what's on GB News, what's in uh, a relatively prevalent part of the kind of right wing media environment. There's a lot of exposure to these crazy ideas, um, so I think it's it's kind of fortunate that it's that it's only Andrew Bridgen so far who's gone gone down that that path. I hear we're two and a half months now into the Sunak era. It feels longer somehow. <laughs> what have we discovered about this man? Has anything surprised you about him? I think that it it only feels longer because the trust premiership, while objectively shorter, felt so long uh, that this uh, this this is now now that we're into the multiples of trusses, uh, things are going to feel a bit longer. I think that we, we've discovered that he's not particularly good at it. Uh, that that's something, I suppose. Uh, although I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, whether we or how many listeners thought that he was going to um, take to it immediately like a duck to water. In in a sense, I've been surprised to some extent by the lack of ambition given the scale of the challenges, right? You, you know, you talk about going out and delivering these five pledges of these things that I want to, several of which just will pretty much a dead set to be achieved uh, automatically. Anyway, perhaps I suppose a charitable reading of that is that the initial ambition is, or the initial, perhaps a charitable reading of that was that when he first came in, the initial ambition was let's not go immediately bankrupt. uh, And that probably took quite a lot of sort of uh, time and energy uh, to happen. But I think that there is, there has been perhaps surprise to me for someone who when we were first introduced to him, right, when he first became chancellor and he thought this like slick PR machine that was very concerned with driving a narrative and crafting a particular narrative. And that doesn't seem to have transferred into number 10. And it almost feels like I was I was watching him at Prime Minister's Questions. And occasionally, it still feels like watching a chancellor who happens to be prime minister in this specific time rather than watching the prime minister. To slightly overwork a metaphor, I would never normally do that, obviously. It feels like he's treading water, but there's a tsunami. Right. <laughs> it's just not nothing he could do, really, at this point as a Conservative PM could really change things, could it? Yeah, I suppose, and you can't, I suppose, like in his position, you can't very well just go up and say, yep, you're right, it's all fucked. Uh, <laughs> right. And uh, that was, I suppose, the success of... Boris Johnson in particular, was somehow rebranding. And in a way, it did make sense, right? The Vote Leave Coalition was a very, very different one to the Cameron Conservative Party that came before. But being able to somehow, through personality or what have you, try and distance himself and his government from the things that had gone before. So it didn't rhetorically seem as though the Conservatives had been in power since 2010. Whereas now, perhaps because so many of the disasters of the last 13 years have just all come together at once. It seems for Sunak inescapable and impossible for him to pretend that he is in any way a break with that. And so when you when you say to him, well, it's like 
you've been in power for 13 years. It, it seems to stick in a way that it didn't stick uh, rightly or wrongly, I would argue wrongly in many ways, uh, with someone like Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I think we've started talking about austerity as something that has directly fed into the current crisis. And I don't think we were doing that so much before. Some people thought that Sunak's enormous wealth would be a problem during a cost of living crisis. The, the upside is that he can avoid the freeloading that Johnson was so, was so keen on. In fact, is still keen on because he's currently squatting in a Knightsbridge house owned by the JCB billionaire, Lord yeah. Bamford, for zero rent. Yeah, no cost of living crisis for him. Um, has he convinced us that he's so rich he only needs to care about the country's finances? Well, I suppose on the one hand, you you are right that like it feels like he would be less likely to be personally involved in some of the grubbier uh, elements of this sort of like tit for tat stuff uh, with donations. Like I, I remember back when the Owen Patterson scandal uh, sort of really lit the touch paper that eventually uh, ignited Boris Johnson's premiership. I remember one of the really stunning things to me was how in you know a parliament that deals with billions and billions of pounds, how cheaply it seemed like individual members could be bought. Right. Obviously, we're still talking about like what an individual is a vast sum of money, but on the scale of what these departments work with and what ministers work with is is not a lot. So yeah, perhaps that he he would be personally less likely to go in for that sort of thing just because he doesn't need to. Obviously, the thing is, yes, you could say that ah, uh, then he would be sort of in a place where he's just thinking about the macro, right, the, the nation's finances, but. I think that it's also a sense that he, the sheer scale of his wealth, I think, actually does take him away from what might be seen as the micro, but the micro is extraordinarily important, right? Because on, on the scale of our individual lives and our individual families, what micro means is the school that your kids go to if you've got school-aged children or the hospital where you may be treated or what have you, or the, the GP surgery uh, or if the train that you get, the public transport and whatnot. And if you have... A degree of well, even even someone who like comparatively is pretty well off, like your standard MP is pretty well off, but wouldn't be entirely insulated by that wealth from the public sphere. Whereas when you're talking about a degree of wealth that sort of removes you from society, the onus is almost on him to prove that that isn't a problem. It could well be that on a personal level, he is telling the truth, and he through memories of. Uh, his family and the GP father of the pharmacist mother and everything does have this this connection that he sincerely feels and whatnot. But it's a very easy sort of attack line against him to say, well, you, you've basically bought your way out of the social contract uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. So how could the, the onus is on you to prove that um, connection and that relation? Yeah, he gave a very partial uh, statement today at PMQs when he said that he was registered with a GP does not mean that he's actually seen the NHS GP. Of course, he might just be super healthy and never need to see an, an NHS GP, well, which is obviously... Now that he's given up the, all the Coca-Cola. Yeah, and it's the optimum state to be in Britain right now. Arthur, do you think Sunak has a grasp of popular opinion? Well, I'm sure he assiduously reads briefings uh, prepared for him for pe from people a bit like Ben, you know, polling experts, others who run focus groups and so on. But what he doesn't seem to have, which is something that some politicians just have instinctively, is that kind of Blair, um, Tony Blair's ability to sort of figure out what most people like to hear, to kind of emote and intuit uh, what, what the public likes. I mean, Sunak always comes across as a bit wooden. Uh, the way he responds to questions around his wife's wealth and everything seems a bit sort of tetchy and awkward. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he's good at reading his briefings, but that doesn't make him very good at kind of naturally running with the grain of, of sort of public opinion. Ben, going to the strikes, biggest strikes in decades. How have people's views on industrial action changed over time? Is it very different now from the seventies, for example? Absolutely. A few things. We are not the country we were 10 to 15 years ago. I, I mentioned before that narratives of scroungers versus strivers really did move votes in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. And they, they did help uh, the Conservatives come, come first and, you know, uh, really damage the Labour brand. And we are not the country we were in 1979, 1984, when narratives of the enemy within by Margaret Thatcher ran riot among voters. Um, it, 
we need to we need to accept a few things here. In 1979, 51% of voters uh, agreed with the idea that the trade unions then were communist run or had or elements of which were communist run. In 1984, between 10 and 15% of voters had sympathy had sympathy with the miners who were striking. Of course, how we look at the miners' strike uh, since then has changed, obviously. But the reality on the ground, the perceptions of public opinion, the public opinion at the time was not particularly uh, sympathetic at all. Um, the methods used by the miners did not poll well at all. And when it, ca- when it comes to industrial relations, it was the Conservative Party, uh, not Labour, that was trusted to deal with them right through the miners' strike, it should be said. There was one instance where they came level with Labour, but generally speaking, the Tories were trusted. What Margaret Thatcher did, the methods she used, were were, were applauded by mo- most Britons. In 2010, 2012, 2011, 2012, 2013, we had uh, quite sceptical attitudes as well. Um, the idea that, uh, I think it was tube drivers, health workers, ambulance drivers, the idea that they should be banned from striking, a majority of Brits agreed with that in 2013. Now, when you ask the question again or similar questions, you do not find uh, similar such sympathy. So if I remember rightly, uh, a majority of Britons in 2013 backed the idea of banning uh, certain health workers, certain tube drivers from striking. And as of recently, um, I believe health workers, ambulance drivers are the strikers with which Britons have the most sympathy right now, between 60 and 70% have sympathy with a strike, support their right to strike. We, we have shifted significantly. The way we look at the economy has shifted significantly. In 2010 through to 15, it was all about debt, deficit, living within our means. There was a grudging acquiescence about the idea of making budget cuts. The, the, even though Brits generally are more uh, spend rather than save when it comes to the public finances, uh, there was an agreement with certain narratives put out by the then conservative Liberal Democrat government. We've changed. We've moved on. Part of me tends to think it's exhaustion with uh, this sort of steady-as-she-goes type policy of the same old, same old uh, austerity. Whether it's austerity directly, I don't know. Whether whether voters name it as austerity, I don't know. I don't think they do. It's just a perception of exhaustion with the here and now, the status quo. The status quo, of course, being conservative rule, um, 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 strict strike rules and, 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 and budgets. We have definitely shifted. Isn't it also the perception that the strikes are not just about wages? And if they are just about wages, then the wages are a key part of the problem in terms of understaffing, of getting enough people back into public services to make them run properly. I mean, this has been an extremely successful tactic by Mick Lynch and other union leaders, isn't it, to make it all about the way these services are run and underfunded rather than about how much their members are being paid for that. Obviously, with the cost of living, that's that's something a lot of people sympathise with too. Absolutely. It, 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 the debate has widened almost to not just be a debate about do you back the strikers uh, arguing for pay? It, it's moved on from that. It's widened from that to are you content with the state of these public services so far? If you are not, you're more likely to have sympathy. Now, it should just be said, though Mick Lynch has perhaps been a success, public attitudes generally towards him and the train drivers are actually quite split. Um, a good number of polling there shows more, more Brits are perhaps uh, disapproving of the train strikes than approving attitudes to Mick Lynch, uh, though he's quite popular on Twitter. This is one instance of where Twitter is not Britain. I think around 60-70% of Britons do not have an opinion on Mr Lynch. Um, and, and of those who do most, albeit marginally most, are disapproving. Um, it, it, Although he started it, well, did he start it? Although the train drivers strike, the train workers, the rail workers strike was the beginning of this series of strikes. And now it's widened to nurses, to, to, to doctors, to university lecturers and so on and so forth. It's not about pay in the eyes of a great many voters. It's more about the perception. Are you happy with the way these services are? The uh, ambulance drivers striking hasn't 
in the eyes of voters, got them talking about should ambulance drivers be paid more. Rather, it's got them thinking about oh, well, the state of the NHS it's not great, is it? It's not in a it's not in a good thing. It's got them thinking about public services more and more. And again, to reiterate, how we look at the economy, how we look at these public services is no longer done through, through the lens of dealing with our debts, dealing with our deficits and acquiescence to austerity because people, Brits, the middle classes, all voters generally do not feel like they've, they've lived it large for the last uh, 13 plus years. They feel like, to be honest, they've all shared the burdens. They feel a little bit exhausted by this all. And the, and the strikes of a well-respected institution only crystallizes that. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Remember, you can put your question to the panel when you back us on Patreon. This week, Callum Ballard says, My local nursery costs £1,800 a month and has an 18-month waiting list. This is clearly an insane state of affairs and surely bad for economic participation, especially among women. How has preschool care and education remained off the political agenda for so long? And what should Labour be proposing as an alternative pitch? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this as someone who's paid a lot of preschool care in the past are here. Is it something that's uh, beginning to prey on your mind as well? Well, it is. So, I mean, I have a nephew who was born in 2022 and my partner and I are thinking about, you know, children in the in the not too distant future. You know, how lots of stories like this were very easy to pigeonhole as, well, that's a future problem in the same way that occasionally very, very incensed about the um, way that the triple lock uh, functions. And then whenever people say to me, well, you know that you'll be the biggest beneficiary of that when you get older, I'm like, ah, well, it's, it's very annoying now. Uh, right. And but, uh, so because you don't focus on the, the tomorrow uh, problems or mm. issues in that way. But so, yeah, I, I had looked like I, I looked out of interest at what the childcare situation was in my sister's area. It seems much the same as what Callum uh, wrote in about and the fact that that's normal and that that might be something on the horizon for us in the near future is a, a huge worry because you're like, well, where are we going to pull that out of? The fact that this has been seemingly an under-discussed thing uh, for a very long time, and, and you'll you'll know better. And please, I I, I want to hear what the situation is uh, for. Like, has it just gotten appreciably worse recently, or why are people just noticing it now? Because it does seem wholly unsustainable. I think it's got worse now um, because there are fewer nurseries. And so naturally they can charge more for their services and inflation and they've got higher costs because of fuel bills and all these kind of things. It was very expensive when um, I had preschool children and, you know, I just accepted for a few years that basically I was working in order for having to for my kids to be looked after you know there, there was no there was no point in working unless that work was really going to be meaningful for the future or because uh, uh, anything less than that and it was going to keep me in the workforce anything less than that was entirely pointless and that is it's, it's difficult as a woman as well because so often you are earning less than your partner and so you're the one who essentially you're the only one who's going to be giving up work if someone gives up work. And that makes you feel very, very powerless. It's awful when you haven't got an income coming in anymore. And it sounds terribly middle class and privileged. But when you haven't got that salary coming in and, some, and suddenly you're having to depend entirely on your partner for everything, everything and saying, look, you know, you're going to have to pay my half of the bills now. Uh, and I'm not going to buy anything for myself. I'm not going to, you know, have any disposable income. That is not a nice feeling. And um, in, at the, I can't imagine how much worse it is now. Arthur, what's your experience of this? Uh, well, probably rather similar to yours, Ros, in that um, when, you know, when our kids were, were younger, certainly when, when uh, we lived in London um, and, and my daughter was, you know, preschool, uh, it, it was basically as two, two working parents in sort of middle class professions Fifty uh, percent of our take-home pay disappeared into into childcare, more or less. And then, you know, I I got a job overseas, and all of a sudden, uh, that the, the equation changed completely um, because we were in a part of the world where you you could hire a nanny for not very much money at all. And and you know, later in in my working life, I worked for a Swedish company, uh, and um, you know, I had Swedish colleagues, and and they have this system where 
that the childcare cost is capped for everybody at a really, really low. I mean, I'm not up to date with what it is now, but it was sort of a couple of hundred quid a month, basically. And the state picked up the tab. And but I did a tiny bit of research on on the Swedish model because I was interested to know. I mean, it would if you tried to do that here now in the UK, it would it would be a low number of billions a year, which you know I would be happy to say is a worthwhile thing to make labour participa- participation uh, possible, particularly for people on lower incomes, for particularly for people uh, who don't can't see a lot of future earning potential. Because I think the thing that Struck, struck me about what you were saying, Ros, and I think it's certainly true for, for my wife, is that she's a doctor. So for her, it was worth staying in the workforce because you know that you have a career that in the future is likely to give you fairly uh, good rewards. But for someone who can't necessarily visualise having um, a particularly well-paid job, you know, 20 years hence, the sort of incentive to stay in the workforce when the cost is so extraordinary, you know, is, is vastly reduced. You also have zero energy and zero time in which to point this state of affairs out. So, yeah. you know, at that time, if you, if you're, you're not going to be on TV programmes talking about how shit it is because you can't afford to pay anyone for, to um, look no. after your kid while you do that. There's also like a geographic luck of the draw element to so much of these things like for example so at the moment my parents live with my sister and brother-in-law and so are helping out a great deal um with childcare and stuff like that when you have a situation where economic opportunities are focused so much in such a small number of places and people find that basically they have to move and may find themselves hundreds of miles away from where parents who would otherwise be able to help uh, are located, um, that that creates a very different uh, set of affairs, right? Like, So in my situation, I also live near my parents. Hopefully they will be able to help us in the future. My other half is one of these EU immigrants who you hear so much about in the, uh, in the news these days. Um, so that, that wouldn't be an option. And so it feels... Kind of un- it, it, not kind of it, it feels extremely unfair that through a sort of luck of the draw thing, being that I grew up near where we've ended up working, um, we're going to be much better off uh, as a result of that than it would have been if I'd grown up in Wigan. Donations to MPs and political parties and lucrative second jobs are as old as the parties themselves. But it's hard to find out who's taking what from whom. Sky News and Tortoise have done some digging to find out just where the money's coming from and who gets it. Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss are the top three cash magnets, as you would expect. But the sources of the cash can be difficult to pin down. One company, MPM Connect, donated heavily to three Labour MPs. But when Sky's Sam Coates went to visit the address where they're registered... No one had heard of them. Is it important that people can fund politicians if they want to? Should we fund parties better to try to stop it? And would that even be possible, given the murky financial arrangements available to people with accountants? Arthur, in governments, Theresa May was a harsh critic of Saudi Arabia. On the back benches, she's earned over 100 grand for a speech in Riyadh. Johnson is earning similar amounts just to show up and waffle on for a bit. Why do people pay so much to listen to failed XPMs? Well, that's a mystery, and I don't know the answer. Um, you know, uh, if they want to pay to listen to failed ex-diplomats, I'm I'm available for a hundred grand um, for 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 a quick uh, speech. But um, I mean, I think uh, you know, the it it seems to be that there is a there's there's a market that exists for very highly paid so-called keynote speakers, and uh, ex-prime ministers are just seen as the top of that market. And I I imagine. If you're uh, Theresa May and someone says, here's 100 grand, but you have to go to Riyadh, you sort of think for about three minutes and think, yeah, all right then. And, and that's that's what happens. So it's just opportunism. As far as I can tell. I mean, it's easy money, right? Yeah. This isn't just a Tory issue, though, because it's interesting to look at the men who've, they're all men, who've donated most in the past three years. Lord Wahid Ali, who was made a Labour peer in 1998 and... Um, has, you know, since been very generous. Michael Woomwell, a businessman from Cornwall who donates to the Conservatives. Sir Victor Blank, a long-standing Labour donor. Martin Taylor, a hedge fund manager and Labour donor. In fact, the top two donors overall are the Unite and GMB unions. So it's not in Labour's interests to reform this system. Should that give us pause? 
Well, definitely. I, I mean, also, you know, let's be clear, even the Lib Dems um, have had their brush with some slightly shady donors over the years. Uh, so I, that no party uh, is immune from this. And basically, it's part of the structure of the way party funding works in this country. I mean, it's almost like the system is invented to encourage corruption and elite capture, because lots of countries uh, have state funding of political parties. Lots of countries make the transparency requirements higher, so it's hard for people to hide what they've donated. Uh, lots of lots of countries have much harsher regulations, and we choose not to do that, so it encourages this kind of corrupt behaviours. I hear Chris Grayling, uh, who I'm sure we all remember, is one of the MPs who are also consultants, somewhat mysteriously. He's making hundred grand a year advising a ports and shipping business. Should MP consultancy be banned? Um, I think that uh, Chris Grayling should be banned, and I think that whoever made that hiring decision should be banned because I, I, you can't imagine that, like, like oh, we've, we've backed this MP, and it's like, oh, I can't imagine that's actually going to work out very well for you with this particular uh, MP. So I think that with, with consultancy and, like, second jobs more widely, there's, there's of course, like, the thing that's, been widely discussed. There are certain things that if you're a doctor, for example, like you need to do certain amounts of practice in order to keep up professional qualifications. Let's take it as a given that that's not the sort of thing uh, that we're talking about banning. I am one of these people, and I know that uh, many people uh, disagree. I wouldn't mind if MPs had a much higher base salary with a ban on outside stuff uh, like this, right? Because it's sort of takes me back to how quote unquote cheaply it seemed that Owen Patterson uh, was bought and what have you. And if you just say that, right, the base salary is going to be higher and the base salary is actually like a, a lot less even than many sort of top public sector jobs and whatnot. Uh, if you increase the base salary and band outside stuff, I think that that's something that probably could work. But I think that it's plausible that you would need to do both of those. Uh, and I don't think that the first one is in any way likely enough to be popular enough um, in order to really get anywhere. Ben, do you think paying MPs more would work? I mean, won't they always want more if they can get it? It's the type of people you get, isn't it? The, the, the people the people who get involved in politics tend to come from certain professional executive jobs where where. Doing a bit on the side is, I suppose, is normal, isn't it? I, I think the problem is not necessarily well. What comes first, the culture in Westminster or the types of people who come to Westminster? I'm, I'm I, to tell you the truth, I'm not particularly sure. Will paying more solve the, the problem? I don't think so. It, 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 it may perhaps setting funding political parties might, you know, it, I don't know if that will solve things either because you're you're only setting a floor for political parties. You're not exactly setting a ceiling there, are you? Unless, of course, you you, you, you want to. Um, I'm not sure, to tell you the truth. I uh, think what Brits think, what voters think about this is they they think they think politicians are paid a lot more than they actually are. You you put the actual figure to voters and they, they think, really, is that it? Uh, I, I, I should let you know a declaration of interest. I'm standing for council my, myself in, in May of this year. And, and when you tell people what a councillor gets paid, they're like, really? Is that it? I thought you were in the gravy train as well. Well, to tell you the truth, councillors get paid now for because it's a it's sort of a not a not a full time job, full time position, even though you're having a big say on housing, planning permission, revamping the high street and so on and so forth. It's always, uh, voters agree, politicians should be paid less. When you ask them to give a figure of what politicians should be paid, the comical reality is that actually the figure they suggest often is um, higher or the actual figure to what they're currently being paid. Do you have a figure? What What is it that when people are surveyed that, you know, what does, what does the median person think that an well, is paid? There's multiple voters. So when you do focus groups and when you, you get sort of a populist response, oh, they should be paid the average salary. But when you when you when you poll it, voters do generally agree, okay, they should be paid more than the average. They should be poor. I think it's close to sixty seventy. For fifty, sixty, seventy, isn't that what that's what an MP is actually on, isn't it? Yeah, I mean a lot of them will get more because they've got some sort of role. Minister, yeah. 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 But I mean, let me take a guess about how much you're gonna earn if you're a councillor. Let me take a guess. Ten grand a year? Am I in? Is it a ballpark? 
around that, yeah. It's yeah. sometimes it's as low some councils I think it's as low as eight. Yeah. And of course, you know, the assumption is that you'll either be retired, like a lot of councillors, or yeah. you'll have another job. Yeah. And I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, I, I really like my local councillors, and if they're doing it for that, then uh, then more power to their elbow, because they're, they're very nice people. I uh, hear yeah, these procurement decisions, you know, when the government buys its services, it sounds very boring in some ways. It is quite boring, but they're a potentially enormous sense, source of corruption, as we saw with Baroness Michelle Moan and her hastily created PPE company, Medpro, because moving from bras to PPE, it's a natural, natural move. We know lots of peers are there because they gave money to parties, but once there, they can try to make that money back, essentially, through their connections. And that's clearly what she was trying to do. Is this another reason to abolish the Lords? So I will say, just on the on the procurement point first, last week uh, I was hanging out with someone who works in the public sector and was talking about like the difficulties that uh, he found with procurement because you basically had people coming at it from his side who just said yes without any negotiation to thing because it's like, well, it's not our money. And then going up against very like shark-like people from the private sector who were trying to get as much out. Of the, and it was it was very, very different. It was just a very different sort of role in the public sector to the people who they were uh, going up against. So maybe that's also an argument for reforming the way that uh, public sector procurement works and that again, actually may entail raising certain public sector salaries so that they are more reflective of the sort of salaries that um, the equivalent um, private sector role would get. I promise that I am uh, not just saying this because I'm in a relationship with someone who works for the public sector. Uh, this is uh, I, I thought this before uh, as well. In terms of uh, the the abolition of the lords, I, I find it a really interesting one because there's, there's always with these things the sort of theory and practice of how it's done. And in theory, I'm actually instinctively in favor of the idea of there being this revising chamber that is uh, done with sort of experts, be they people who've worked in science or industry or any of these things. I can see why on paper that's a really good idea. The practical reality of it turns out to be uh, extremely different. And I never know, like with these sorts of questions, uh, it's always really difficult to say whether reform is the answer or abolition is the answer. Like I'm also wholly in fear of the idea of universal medical care that is free at the point of use. At the moment, that is not something that is working uh, in this country. I don't think that it should be gotten rid of because of the fact that it's not working. I think that there are loads of other things that need to be done in order to improve it and in this instance just take it back to a way that it actually was providing a much, much better service uh, until about 2010 when something entirely mysterious happened that, God, we have absolutely no idea what that might have been. Right. So I don't know. If, if, there, if there is a way of fixing the House of Lords so that it works more like that thing that I said on paper at the beginning, then I would be up for that. But it may well be an extremely naive thing to believe that that's even possible. It's nearly the end of the show, so what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week? Arthur, what have you noticed? Uh, well, I was thinking a bit about Myanmar, and then it came up in uh, Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell's podcast. But of course, none of our listeners will listen to that podcast, so you'll, you've heard <laughs> no, it from me. Do not listen um, to that podcast. No, no, no. I've never. I don't even know what podcast I'm talking about. So, um, uh, the, but yeah, so Myanmar has is basically having a civil war at the moment. Huge areas of the country not in the control of the government. Um, extraordinary brutality by the uh, military uh, junta that rules the country, over a million refugees in Bangladesh. Um, and, uh, yeah, no one seems very interested in it. Ah, uh, yeah, what have you noticed? I wanted to bring up, uh, firstly, there's, there's, there seems to be some sort of book by some sort of prince, uh, but I think that, that uh, pe people haven't really noticed that. Uh, so if you, if you haven't clocked on to that, then uh, maybe look that up. There are... Uh, 
reports that uh, the estimate of the size of the tax gap, uh, the sort of tax owed to HMRC estimated versus what they actually uh, get, is now up to £42 billion, uh, up from £32 billion last year. This is going to be an estimate, and it'd be very easy to say, well, if we just got these £42 billion, you're probably not going to get £42 billion. But let's say you got £10 billion of that. Seems like it could be a pretty big game changer. Uh, I know the Republicans in the US also like very on sort of underfunding the people who go out and look for this sort of thing, collect this sort of thing. And it just seems like sort of a low-hanging fruit uh, way of adding a bit more uh, to the public uh, coffers if if we were bothered. But here, Mike, I've, I've got three weeks to finish my tax return, so that will take care of most of that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doomsday Watch is doing very well, guys. Yeah, we're really taking off now. <laughs> ben, have you uh, come up with something? Well, actually, it, it, to tell you the truth, it hasn't been covered at all because I don't think um, people perhaps have noticed it. Um, I just want to take your mind back to the, the December by-election in Stratford and Elmston where, where Labour held onto their seat. And it was happening at the same time as the posties going on strike when Royal Mail was going on strike. And at the same time, there was a little council by-election held in Wigan in I think the the ward was called Atherton and turnout was five percent or rather four point something percent and it was the lowest turnout in in by-election history ever we've never had a turnout lower than that and I, I, I was speaking to candidates activists organizers on the ground there and they all said to me that that the strike the the posties going on strike contributed to the low turnout not because you know well because there were postal votes filled in sitting in the sorting offices that hadn't been brought to the town hall for the count. And that's why the turnout was low, because the votes didn't get sent on time. And the vote, the turnout was low in the Stretford and Ermston by-election as well. And like I say, 5% turnout. That's because there were probably hundreds of ballots waiting in sorting offices that hadn't been taken to the town hall, hadn't been taken to the counting centre because of the strike. And I don't think this has been covered because I don't think people fully appreciate our reliance or rather democracy's reliance in this country on the ability for Royal Mail to deliver the postal votes on time because in that case they didn't because they were on strike. And I think perhaps going forward, we as a country might need to have a, just a little debate on that, on how we, how we sort out our postal votes. It's going, vote. going to affect the May elections, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If if indeed Royal Mail on strike, then then uh, there will of course be ward results going right down to the wire. That that something needs to you know we need we need some something needs to happen at least, or a discussion needs to be had. Well, I noticed that um, private schools, according to Open Democracy, who've done some great work on this, were given more than one hundred fifty-seven million pounds in government loans during the pandemic, despite state schools not being able to apply for these loans, and even more egregiously. Several of these schools were schools that were previously been attended by government ministers. So, yeah, the the extent the extent of the dodgy COVID dodgy loans, I think, is still becoming apparent. And since Rishi Sunak, as Chancellor at the time, has not much interest in exposing just what went on, I reckon there's a lot more to come out. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Arthur. Thank you. Ahir. Thank you. And Ben Walker. Thank you. Now stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon, after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Just search Oh God, What Now Patreon to find out how. So hello and many thanks from me to Joe Andrews, Kushler... Rebecca Sharkey, Helen Smith, William O'Malley, Nicholas Wright, Bai Kaishui, and Liam Momira. Yes. Big thanks and hello from me to Lynn Perkins, Martin Ricks, James Dean, Al Campbell, who it turns out, Arthur, they, they've heard of our podcast, even if... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Kelly Haggett, Nada, Norm Calder, and John Hymas. And many thanks for your support from me to Caitlin Hurst, John Wood, Robert O'Malley, Peter Hannan, Daniel Flynn, Sean Topping, Will Griffin, and Gregory S. Brown. We'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by, oh, God, Ros Taylor, Arthur Snell, and, oh, God, Ahir Shah. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. 
with production by Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomasiewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Batrim backers. This week, New Year, New Liver. According to the charity Alcohol Change, who would say that, wouldn't they? Nine million of us will attempt to cut back on booze during dry January. I don't know, I, I was barely drinking during December and I'm barely drinking during January. It's just like my new way of life now. Arthur, have you given up booze this year? No, um, I have not. I, I tried dry January a few times in recent years, but somehow it didn't seem worth it this year. Just because things are so shit. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that nothing shit about my own life particularly, but I, I just, I don't know, the sort of, um, the slight grimness of the of the general situation, it didn't seem worth putting myself through a, a p- rather kind of artificial uh, experience of a few weeks of drinking non-alcoholic beers. And are you going to your cosy Cotswold pub to drink or are you drinking at home? I certainly um, quite frequently attend um, various cosy pubs um, dotted around the Cotswolds. I'm not a great pub goer, but then I am uh, blessed, I suppose, by having a choice of some really lovely pubs quite near me. So, you know, I certainly um, certainly try to support them as best I can. Ah, here, do you drink? Uh, I do, yes. Uh, sort of increasingly less uh, as time goes on. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm very glad about that. I think that sort of like in, in my 20s in particular, it was very sort of, you know, the, the correlation and causation between that and negative mental health uh, was was always uh, sort of playing. And um, so I'm, I'm sort of glad that it's one of those things that has waned a bit over time and is now a more enjoyable thing. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then give yourself a New Year's present and sign up to Backers on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Sorry, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.